From the book of Amos, chapter 8, starting with verse 12. This is what the sovereign Lord showed me, a basket of ripe fruit. What do you see, Amos, he asked. A basket of ripe fruit, I answered. Then the Lord said to me, the time is ripe for my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. In that day, declares the sovereign Lord, the songs in the temple will turn to wailing. Many, many bodies flung everywhere. Silence. Hear this, you who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land, saying, When will the new moon be over, that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath be ended, that we may market wheat? Skimping on the measure, boosting the price, and cheating with dishonest scales, buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings with the wheat. The Lord has sworn by himself the pride of Jacob. I will never forget anything that they have done. Will not the land tremble for this, and all who live in it mourn? The whole land will rise like the like denial. It will be stirred up and then sink like the river of Egypt. In that day, declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your religious festivals into mourning and all your singing into weeping. I will make all of you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. I will make that time like mourning for for an only son in the end of it like a bitter day. The days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. The word of the Lord. From the book of Colossians, chapter 1, starting with verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning of the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up, my, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. The word of the Lord. 
A reading from the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 10, starting with verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. The Gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, everybody. Oh, a lot going on in our community this week. I spoke with you all about just, um, with several of you, about so much going on. And I, and I meant it. I've maybe said this too many times this morning, but it's just so interesting when a community of people gathers and a Christian community gathers that we just have so much going on. I mean, we have a lot of celebrations going on right now. Uh, baby Moran is going to be born any time now. And so we're excited. We made a joke this morning that if the slides all of a sudden just drop off and, and that chair's empty, then you, we know what's going on. Um, excited about that. A couple of you have new homes that you're in the process of buying or have bought, and that's exciting. We've got new jobs. We've got um, all kinds of really cool celebrations going on. And then I also talked to some of you this week that said, this has been the hardest week I've had in my life or in recent memory. Um, some of you have had just devastating things happen, or you've had just a really stressful, particularly stressful and overwhelming week. And, uh, and, and I really just truly believe that there is something in the rhythm of gathering and worshiping week after week, no matter what that week was like for you. And then also remembering, and I don't even fully know how to say this, but that we don't just come as individuals with individual things going on in our lives, but that somehow the body of Christ kind of brings in all of that together, right? So we have joy and we have pain with us this morning, and Christ is present in the midst of that. Maybe that sounds a little mystical and out there or whatever, but, but there's something about that, I think, that Christ wraps his arms around all of our joys and celebrates them fully, and all of our pain and is with them fully this morning. Um, Today, I want to talk, our sermon is called All the Things, <laughs> and, and we're just going to talk about all those things that distract us from, from God, and all the things that are good, but that we put in maybe wrong priority, and so they get out of whack. Um, the other day, I told Lucy, it, one of her favorite things to play is that she just... She loves to just play make-believe with her little characters, with her little figures. I did that all the time as a kid. But I think something about my personality, I like to go kind of play by myself a lot. I created worlds and all these things. Lucy, no. She wants all the people in her life to play with her all the time, okay? So, and she doesn't have siblings yet, and so it's just trying to get, you know, mom, dad, please, come play with, well, we just played with you just a few minutes ago. There's only so long I can do this voice of this character, you know, before I'm just tired. I can't do it anymore. And, but the other day, we had created a schedule, trying to create a schedule for her in the summer, because it's just, otherwise, she goes nuts. And so we created the schedule, and I said, this hour of the day, I'm going to play with you whatever you want to play. 
You just tell me what you want to play and we're going to play. And her instinct is always she runs into her room and she grabs all her Incredibles figurines, right? So she's got all the different characters and she runs them out. And of course, I miss her Incredibles voice all the time, right? And she wants to play outside. She wants to take all of the characters outside and we go play with them. And we do all these things. And, and I was just thinking about how we have these characters and we can really make them do whatever we want them to do. <laughs> we break the laws of physics to, you know, Mr. Incredible all of a sudden can fly in the movie he couldn't fly, but he can fly now. You know, we can do this. Um, my voice is not anything like Mr. Incredible's in the movie, and I try to imitate him, and she says, do Mr. Incredible's voice, and it's not anything like the character, but she thinks I do the best one, you know, and so we do all these things, and there's so many things in our life that we can manipulate, that we can kind of control, and we can give them our voice, and we can fix it, and we can do these things, and I was just struck by these passages this week that God, we can't do that with God. We can't manipulate him. We can't control him. We can't make him do what we want to do. And one of the central themes of the Bible is the human tendency to worship things, creative things, over the creator, over the one who's created the world. We worship things, all the things. We worship things that we can imagine. We worship things that make sense because we can control things. We can get our mind around things. We can try to control things. We can see physical things. We can touch them. We can experience them, and we can control them. In fact, the second of the Ten Commandments is thou shalt make no graven images, right? Um, I always felt like that command didn't apply to me. That was a ten, one of the Ten Commandments I could just skip over because I'm like, I don't have any like um, God statues in my house that I'm tempted to worship or anything like that. I just felt like, okay, this is one of the more primitive, outdated commandments. We as evolved 21st century people, we don't really need that one, right? Like the first one we need, maybe the third one, don't take the Lord's name in vain, maybe we need that one. But, but that second one, I, I feel like maybe I don't need. But the challenge for Israel was not that what they didn't do this thing where they created images and they said, this image that I've created, this thing that I've created is better than Yahweh. That's not what they did. They didn't say, I've created this thing and now I'm going to worship this thing as better than Yahweh. They didn't create a golden calf and say, yeah, a golden calf is way better than worshiping the one true and living God who delivered us from Egypt. No, that's not what they did. What they were saying is, I've created this golden calf and Yahweh now speaks through this golden calf that I've created, okay? So I'm going to worship God through this thing that I have made. Our constant temptation is to turn to these things that have been created and to say that these things, even these good things, many of them that we worship are good things, to say these are actually the voice of God or these are actually what God wants because I say so and I can control it. God is speaking through these things. And that's kind of what Amos is speaking against. As we've been going through this like season of the lectionary and we're reading the book of Amos, every time the Amos reading happens, which Jacob read this morning, I hear and I go, oh my gosh. Like today he's talking about like, I'm gonna turn all your festivals and worship celebrations into weeping. Like you're gonna have sackcloth and ashes. Last week, I think it was like, your wife will be a prostitute and you will die in a pagan land. Like, it's like, oh my gosh. And then we say, this is the word of the Lord. And we all respond, thanks be to God. Like, oh my gosh, this is so harsh. But what Amos is saying is he's speaking to Israel and he's like, you've amassed silver, you've amassed wheat, 
you buy sandals, you do all these things, you become obsessed with these things, but you've forgotten the poor in your midst. You've forgotten, and your whole point, the whole reason Israel was created was to bless the whole world. And you've forgotten that central command, and you're focused on all these other created things. That's become central to you. God's calling has always been, God's heart has always been that the world would be blessed through his people, that his glory would shine. And yet his people are constantly distracted by many things. At the beginning of his letter to the Colossians that Ellen read this morning, the apostle Paul refers to Jesus as the head of the body. This section of Colossians is like one of my favorite passages of scripture. It's this, what we call a really high Christology, which is just a fancy way of saying he talks about Jesus like he's really important and special. (laughs) Like it's a really high way of speaking about Jesus. And so he calls Jesus the head of the body. And N.T. Wright points out that just like in English, there are a lot of definitions for the word head here. So in English, we use this word to refer to a lot of different things. A head is part of the human skeleton. It refers to a role in an institution or an organization. So you can be the head of an institution. It can refer to the scroll and peg box of a violin. That is called the head. Um, It is one side of a coin, heads or tails, right? It is the source of a river, the head of the river. It is also the top of a foaming pint of beer right? Like we have all these definitions for this word head. And in Hebrew, the word head can mean firstborn. And Paul uses that definition of the word head twice in verse 15 and verse 18. Jesus is the firstborn, but he uses other definitions of this word as well. In verse 17, it means Jesus is supreme, that he is the head of the body, which is the church in verse 18. He's the beginning also in verse 18. And Paul is careful with these balanced poetic sections showing the church in Colossae the central thing they need to know as they grow is the centrality and supremacy of Christ. That's central to everything. Anything else, okay, I I wasn't gonna say this quote, um, but I am. Uh, Stanley Hauerwas, he's known, he's a really famous theologian and he's brilliant and he's wonderful, but he's also known as the cussing preacher. Okay? because he just says a lot of very inappropriate words and things. So he says, um, Jesus Christ is Lord and everything else is bull, right? I'm not, I'm not gonna go there this morning. I'm not him. But that's true, right? Like Jesus Christ is Lord, that's central to everything and everything else that's good and true and right comes out of that. Um, now I know for us in 21st century, this command feels abstract. It's like, well, what does that mean? We talk about Christ is central and we proclaim that and we say all that, but what does that actually mean? And I think one of the reasons why that's so confusing is Christianity in our culture has been assumed now for generations, okay? We're just now getting to a point where Christianity may not be eventually the majority religion. We kind of see that. But there's been, Christianity's been part of our culture for generation after generation. So saying Christ should be central and our Christian faith should be central, that, that feels like squishy and abstract. Like what does that actually mean in everyday life? So we now have like layers of in our culture, a false or pseudo-Christianity that means to put Christ center or to be a Christian means to follow a certain cultural group or vote for a certain political party or to have a certain kind of perspective on kind of social life. But for Paul's audience, this meant everything. 
When you say Jesus Christ is Lord and Christ should be central, it changed how they lived every day because it changed who they were at the core of who they are. It was about a new identity, a new way of viewing the world, a new way of thinking about ourselves. It changed everything. It was fundamental to them. Why? Well, at the time of this letter, the Roman Empire ruled the world, and they were uniquely good at shaping the imagination of their people. So we might say today that Rome was really good at propaganda, right? Like they got into people's minds and imaginations. They created a narrative about the empire and the empire offering peace. And one of the major ways they did this was through images, all right? So Paul uses the word image here, and it's significant. But images were a big deal in the Roman Empire. In fact, images of the emperor were as ubiquitous in the first century as corporate logos are today. So think about how you go throughout your life and how many corporate logos or images you see on every day, like advertisements and all those kind of things. Like images of Rome were just as ubiquitous as that. Anywhere you went in your world, in your home, in the public square, everywhere you went, it was images of the emperor shaping your imagination, forming you. They were on markets, they were on coins, they were in the gymnasium, the gladiatorial games, on jewelry, goblets, lamps, paintings, everywhere were images of this emperor who was the Lord. In the Roman Empire, Caesar was seen to have divine rule and he was actually called the son of God. Think about that. Some of the language that's used for Jesus in the New Testament is intentionally subversive. Caesar was called son of God. He was called prince of peace, right? He was called the father. Think about it. Wow, subversive stuff. He was seen as the head of the body politic who kept the peace. But this peace that Rome offered was carried out through crucifixion. It was carried out through violence. Paul basically takes all the claims of the empire, all these narratives, all of this mythology, he dissects them and he turns them upside down in Jesus. The empire has told you that this is the narrative how you define yourself, that peace comes through the empire, comes through um, Rome. They've ingrained in you through their myriad of images and imperial mythology that they are in control. But the good news, the gospel, is that Jesus is actually Lord of it all. And Jesus presents before us self-giving love, the true nature and heart of God, which is drastically different from the empire. So Paul shows who really is sovereign over creation, who images the invisible God, who holds the cosmos together, who brings about true reconciliation and peace, and it ain't Caesar. Paul also does this interesting thing when he says he is the head of the body, the church. He replaces the body politic, the empire, with the body, the church. So he says, you're used to thinking of the body as the empire, but there is a better body that is centered in Jesus. But Paul is convinced that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So there's that word image. It harkens us back to Genesis 1, where human beings are created in the image of God. That there is an image who is better than all the imperial images, who is the true image, who's better than all the propaganda, and he stands as the true image of the invisible God. This man, Jesus, who lived and died and rose again 2,000 years ago, we believe and we affirm was somehow God in the flesh. 
And if so, we ought to embrace him fully. (laughs) There's nothing else that can be more central than this person, Jesus, because the more we get to know Jesus, the more we get to know God, Paul says. He says he's the mirror image of God. So the Bible tells us that no one has ever seen God, but Jesus is God's mirror image. So think about it this way. If somebody right now is standing in the kitchen, okay, or somebody over there in the kitchen, and we have a mirror on that wall right there, I can't, with my kind of naked eye, I can't go in there, I can't just see them from here, right? But I can through the mirror image. I can see who's over there. Um, In other words, God is in the next room, and we might call that heaven, that place that we see some in some ways, we glimpse in some ways, but we don't fully see. And Jesus is like the mirror that stands at the corner, allowing us to see God clearly. Now, in our world, when we make an exclusive claim like this, like Colossians about Jesus, this feels dicey, all right? This feels hard for us because we have a lot of friends who are not Christians, so it, it's hard, especially those of us as we live in the city and we are around so much diversity, which is so beautiful. This is really hard for how do we talk about the exclusive claims of Christ and also celebrate and affirm our friends of other religions? Many of them live way better lives than many of the Christians that I know, right? Are you saying that we see God and they don't? Is that what we're saying? Is there just one unique mirror? Or maybe we create a thing where there's a bunch of mirrors and there's one mirror that's bigger and there's a bunch of other little ones. Or, you know, what what do we do with that? Well, I think that many of the, we can affirm that many of the philosophies and systems of our world can sense God's presence, can sense that there's something else beyond um, just what we see with our physical eyes. They're not mirrors, but they're kind of like when, when I walk into my apartment and I smell Ashley's wonderful cooking, right? I don't yet see it. I'm ready to go see it, but I don't yet see it. I smell it. I sense that there's something else there, right? Um, I think this is kind of foundation, kind of the foundation for interreligious dialogue. Is we can affirm that there is something about my friend who practices a different faith, which I believe is consistent in some ways with the God who's revealed in Jesus. Like I can, they can smell that there's something going on. They can sense that there's something else going on. There's something that hints at God, which rumors him. And we can embrace that. And we can affirm that in each other. And we can serve our communities together and all these kind of things. And yet, as the Christian, we are convinced that there's something about this Jesus character who uniquely reveals the heart of God. Something about Jesus that is different, and the scripture says that he is God in the flesh. And there are a lot of destructive narratives and systems in our world today, and I'm convinced, unfortunately, that some of the most destructive are Christian in name. That some of the most destructive are those who say, hey, I'm a Christian, and they create these destructive systems, and that creates a dilemma for us. So that's why when, we, when we, many of us say, my Buddhist friend looks more like Jesus than most of my Christian friends. Like, what do we do with that? Well, what I would suggest is that those friends of ours may have leaned into that sense of God, leaned into that whiff, that longing, that essence that we have, that there is something in the other room that's different. And it might look like this. And I get a strong sense 
like this. And many of our Christian friends, and I think partially this is because Christianity has become more of a cultural religion, many of our Christian friends have lost sight of Jesus altogether and have worshiped other idols and other systems, right? So I think this is something we can affirm. So we can't just say Christians all have it right, right? And then everybody else has it wrong. We can't do that. What we can say is look to Jesus because he is the one who uniquely reveals the heart of God. That's why Jesus must always be central to the Christian faith. And when we lose sight of it, we have these destructive patterns. Paul says all things are created in Christ. All things, all the things. The term all things recurs throughout the poem over and over again. So Paul invites his hearers to imagine all things as things in heaven and on earth. And then he adds things that are visible and invisible. So things in heaven and on earth, things visible and invisible. What we're supposed to get from this is that's everything. (laughs) There's nothing that's not in heaven or on earth or visible or invisible, okay? Everything is in him. Nothing is left. This means thrones, dominions, rulers, powers. It means ecology. It means the cosmos. Jesus is the one who holds together everything. And also, Paul would say, he holds together old creation and new creation. So old creation, the the creation that God has made that is beautiful and wonderful, but has also been broken and corrupted by sin. But also this new creation that has come about through the resurrection, that God is making things new and making things right. There are often two competing philosophies that we wrestle with. So hang with me here. These are two important things. The first one is what we might call dualism, all right? And this one says that the created world is bad and evil. So basically everything that's been created, everything that's physical is bad in some way. It's corrupted in some way. And that Jesus came to save, it, save us from that world and then to take that world and throw it away in the trash, okay? This is called dualism. Now, many of us have grown up in some subtle form of this, right, in our Western world. This idea that, yeah, anything that's physical or fleshly is just bad, it's, it's awful, and we need to transcend that and get beyond that. And one day, those of us who are raised Christian, the idea is God's going to just snatch us away from this physical world, and we're going to have something better than that, okay? But the second one, so the first one's dualism. The second one, seeing that the first one won't do, says the opposite, that the first world that was created is inherently good. But one of the things that this one struggles with is evil and pain. Because what it tends to do is say that evil and pain doesn't really exist. That it's just a construct, right? That it's just uh, the world is good and evil and pain, they're just just facades. They're They're not really in existence. So the goal is to get in touch with the universe. So you may have heard these kind of ideas. If we just get in touch with our inner selves, get in touch with the universe, then that's really the goal of life. And evil and pain, all of those are just constructs. This is often called pantheism. So the first one would be dualism, and that's to separate the world. The earthly world is bad. Something else, a spiritual world is good. The second one is to say, no, the universe is all kind of good. It's really good. And evil is just a shadow or just a facade. Paul, in this poem, the reason why I think it's so important is Paul tries to show us a better way beyond dualism and pantheism. How old creation and new creation are held together in Jesus. 
that Jesus is the one through whom the whole creation was made in the first place. So first of all, think about how remarkable that is. Paul is writing just a few years after the resurrection, really. You know, like it's not very long after uh, the resurrection has happened that Paul is writing here. And in this short of a time, (laughs) people are already saying this one who walked the planet, that all of creation was created through that guy. That's amazing. That's profound. It's hard to make this stuff up. But it's also an amazing thing to say about our world, that our entire world that has been created is the workmanship of Jesus. It is beautiful and powerful and amazing because he made it that way. But it is also severely broken. It is full of ugliness and evil that was not God's design. The world has been warped and twisted. The living God in Jesus has now acted to heal the world of its brokenness. That's what Paul is saying. The same Jesus through whom the world was made is the same Jesus through whom the world has now been redeemed. He is the God of old creation and of new creation at the same time. He is the firstborn, Paul says, that's another language, firstborn of creation and the firstborn of new creation. When Paul says he's the firstborn from among the dead, that his resurrection points us to a world that's been resurrected, a world that's being made new. Okay, it's a lot of philosophy. Don't blame me. This is Paul is like really philosophical in this passage. So I have to go to these places. I also enjoy going to these places. But um, So these are big things to say about Jesus. But why does Paul feel the need to emphasize this? Like we read this stuff and I know I've been a Christian my whole life and I read it and I go, yeah, Jesus is a big deal. Sweet, yes, I agree. That's awesome. Why does Paul feel the need to tell his congregations that Jesus is such a big deal. Well, notice that in the next section, Paul goes from this big cosmic explanation about Christ's lordship over the whole universe, over the cosmos, over stars, over all these kind of big things, to saying, all right, after all of that, once you were alienated from God, once you were his enemy, but in Christ, God has reconciled you. So God is not just working on a macro level. He's working in your life, that he has redeemed you, that you have a new identity in him. This is not just good news for the cosmos. This is good news for you. Just as the world is broken, you have been broken, and God has reconciled you. And he has revealed the Roman Empire to be a sham. In fact, they used a weapon of war, the cross, to kill the one true God. And God turned it into the very tool of redemption, flipping it upside down. Most scholars believe that the Colossian Christians didn't deny all of this stuff about Jesus that Paul was saying. They didn't deny the preexistence of Christ, his lordship, but they devalued it. They still believed somehow that Caesar had final authority they still were giving in to some of that propaganda. There were other uh, Christians at the time who believed certain heresies that were um, celebrating angels almost to the level of Jesus. 
Why angels? Because angels were the ones who gave the Jewish law in their tradition. So they would look at uh, the angels and they would say, okay, the angels are about on the same level as Jesus. And there were all these kind of heresies. So Paul is trying to get us back to central. Who is central? Jesus is central. Well, what does this raise for us? We're not in here today. I don't think any of you that I know of are in danger of worshiping angels this morning. Um, But we might ask ourselves, in what ways in our lives might we devalue the supremacy of Christ? We may doctrinally affirm his supremacy. They say, yeah, I believe all that. But at the end of the day, there are so many things that capture our attention. There's so much propaganda that says, actually, this is the better way. This is the true story. I have been, and I'm just gonna be honest with you, and I know that I go into dangerous waters every time I talk about these things, but, but I've been deeply grieved by the racial animosity and language in our country lately. Um, particularly this week from our president. Um, That's a manifestation of it, but these are things that have been under the surface for a long time. And I think some of us are tempted to go, oh, wow, well, things are way worse than they were however long ago. But I think people of color, in their experience, many would say that, no, this stuff's been around forever. It's just often under the surface. It's not often celebrated in our public discourse in the way that it is. Um, ethnocentrism, white supremacy manifested in slavery, and then also in some levels in materialism is really our country's original sin. I mean, that's, that's the fatal flaw of our country. Um, and it's so easy for those of us who call ourselves Christians to shift our focus just like Israel did <laughs> when the prophet Amos spoke to them, to economic concerns, cultural concerns, fear of the outsider. I think Christians in our world now, we have so much, especially evangelical Christians, there's so much fear. There's so much fear of losing some cultural control, some cultural power. And that fear often manifests itself in a desire to react against those who are different. But it's an age-old story. But, but on a closer level, like, what are the things we might go, okay, that's all politics, that's a big, but I think it's important to, to recognize that. But then in our lives, like, like, what are the things in my life that I think run the world? What are the things that I think have the final authority? What are the things that jockey for supremacy with God in my life? Paul says it is essential to center our lives on Christ. And I think one of the things that always leads us to is, and that's why the Amos passage is so important this morning, where would Christ be in today's world? Who would he be with? What would his priorities be? So Jesus offers us a new and better way to be human, the right way to be human. New creation has begun in him. We live in in a world with so many definitions of the good life, so many ways that we are taught to be the best human we can be, so many ways we're taught to the best way to live. We could really live our lives, we could live an entire lifetime jumping from one narrative about the good life to another narrative 
and back and forth and back and forth. Well, maybe it's success and it's success in my career. So I'll just chase after that with all my heart. Well, that kind of feels empty. Maybe it's just getting as much money as I can. So I'll just try to achieve as much money as I can. We jump to that narrative for a while. We go, well, really, maybe it's more about the approval of other people. And if enough people like me, and so we jump to that narrative for a while. And then we go, you know, the career thing might've been the thing. <laughs> then we go back to that and we go back and forth. We could spend, there are people who have spent entire lifetimes jumping back and forth from all of these different kinds of things. For first century Colossae, the blueprint for the good life and for humanity was the empire following in the way of the empire. Paul is telling them they are not defined as subjects of the empire. They are part of the family of the one true God who holds all things together. That is their primary identity. So for us, what does it mean for us to replace the images in our life, the false images? Dallas Willard writes, the process of spiritual formation in Christ is one of progressively replacing destructive images and ideas with the images and ideas that filled the mind of Jesus himself. Spiritual formation in Christ moves us towards a total interchange of our ideas and images for his. That's the ball game right there. Like what are the false images that we chase? And what does it mean to replace those with Christ? Images on social media don't paint an accurate picture of real life. You see your friends who their family has got it all together and they went on that fabulous vacation and everything just looked perfect. And you see it and you go, wow, that must be nice. What do they, what do, they do for a living? That They get to go on all these fancy vacations. Gosh, that would be great. We never get to do anything like that. What you don't see is that they actually fought with their family over politics the whole time and that their wife is no longer speaking to her mother-in-law, right? <laughs> we don't see those things. I'm not saying everybody is that way. I'm just saying we don't see what's behind the surface, right? You get that? People may, um, I remember when Lucy was really little, um, some people still do this now, but uh, Lucy was really little and we'd post a picture and she'd have pigtails and her little kitty shoes and this big old grin on. And, and people would say things like, oh my gosh, you have the perfect child. Or they'd say things like, um, life must just be a dream with you guys every day. Or I remember a relative told us one time, it was like, um, I bet you just every day is full of a bundle of laughs with Lucy. I'm like, well, yes, it's true. But what you didn't see is right before I took that picture, she ran up to the top of the playground at Chick-fil-A and refused to leave and screamed, I hate you, daddy, from the top of her lungs. And I had to take her out kicking and screaming and trying to bite me right before I took that picture. <laughs> Social media is misleading. The Instagram image may be real, but it's not the full picture. You see the wonderful design ideas on Pinterest and you like them, but for some, the, images, the image causes us to dream of a life where if I could just design the right palette shelf, everything in my world will be right again, right? Corporate images do that to us. You see an image of the perfect person wearing the perfect clothing item, sometimes for the perfect price. And if you think, you sometimes think, I will be the perfect person if I buy that thing. <laughs> now, none of us would say that. None of us would walk by in the mall and go, yes, I will be the perfect person if I get that outfit. 
But there is something in us that says, oh, the good life is this. That's the good life. And yet we see these promises leave us empty. These are often fine and good things, but they don't deliver on their promises. But Jesus is the real deal, Paul says. He delivers on his promises. He's not trying to sell us something or convince us of a lie. He has given his life for us. And I think a lot of the Christian life and a lot of what we do around here is demythologizing our culture. (laughs) It's trying to break down some of these false images and go, that's all empty and there's something better. Finally, as we close here, in the story of Jesus at the home of Mary and Martha, and be really quick with this, we see a good example of what it might be to be distracted by all the things. Um, She's doing a bunch of tasks. And we have to assume that they have to do with hospitality. So these are good things. Like she's making the hummus and getting the pita bread together and, you know, all this kind of, I don't know what they're eating, but but, but Jesus is there. We got to do a lot of stuff. We got a lot to get ready for him. And Martha gets upset with her sister because she's not helping. She's just sitting at the feet of Jesus. Now, in this world, Mary's action, sitting at the feet of Jesus, would be scandalous. Why? Because she's taking the posture of a disciple. In this culture, the only time you sat at somebody's feet is if you were trying to learn from them, a disciple sitting at the feet of a rabbi. And women weren't disciples. They didn't do that. But Mary's doing that. She's breaking the norm here. Sometimes when I've heard this text in the past, I've tend to think of it in terms of personality types, right? Maybe you've heard sermons like this before. So we go, well, Mary's just a daydreamer. She's really into theology and she's really into kind of more abstract things. So I tend to think about me. I I get really spacey when I'm thinking about a theological topic and Ashley sometimes has to nudge me. Listen to Lucy tell you what she's telling you right now. You're off in outer space at this point. But that's not Mary in this world. She's not a daydreamer here. This is not just somebody who prefers listening to theology versus somebody who is acting. No, for Mary to sit as a disciple was an act of resistance because all of the gravitational pull in this culture would be for her to do what Martha is doing because that's what women did. They put all the stuff together. But she knows that the kingdom of God, Mary knows that the kingdom of God is right in front of her. So Martha appeals to Jesus, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. It's kind of passive aggressive, I think. She doesn't go straight to Mary and say, hey, will you help me? She says, do you see what my sister is doing? Tell her to come and help me. And then Jesus shatters all the cultural images. He shatters all the cultural stereotypes. And he says, actually, Mary's chosen the better part. She's made the better choice. The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things. There is need of only one. Mary has chosen the better part, which will not be taken away from her. Listen, Martha was busy with a lot of good things. Um, Have you ever caught yourself in this kind of pattern where you go, "I'm I'm not really distracted by outright sin in my life. There's nothing in my life that I'm necessarily held back that's just wrong and awful and, you know, I know is wrong. I'm distracted by good things in my life things that should be part of my life in the way of Jesus, but they've somehow become an idol for me. I'm distracted by providing for my family, becoming the main thing that I do. Distracted by keeping the house clean, that that's really my defining characteristic. 
I'm defined by making sure we have dinner for the week. (laughs) I'm defined by my patients or my clients or what I do. I'm distracted with community work, right? But we forget the main thing. It's the main thing that keeps all things together. In him, all things hold together. Everything in the world, everything in creation holds together in the person of Jesus. That doesn't mean that there's no time to do the dishes. (laughs) Doesn't mean there's no time to mow the lawn, right? Or finish your charts or plan a vacation. All of these things are good things, but their alignment matters. They can't be the defining thing. Another way to think about this is we're, we're living a life Are we living a life that's driven by our work or by the Spirit's work? Think about your life. Is your life a rowboat or a sailboat? (laughs) Is it built on your work or is it built on the wind of the Holy Spirit blowing through your life? When we put our work first, our efforts first, our achievements first, we slip into pride. But when we're receiving like Mary's doing, we place ourselves in the hand of the one who aligns our work with his. Our call is to receive our identity, not to achieve our identity. Martha is being invited by Jesus to surrender. Through the prophet Amos, the children of Israel were reprimanded because they'd been distracted, focusing on the wrong things. They'd forgotten the poor to whom they were called. Paul tells the church at Colossae that all things hold together in Christ. They shouldn't be distracted by false images because Jesus is the true image. And Jesus identifies that Martha was distracted by many things and invites her into a new way of defining herself in the world. May we learn to receive instead of trying to achieve. May we demythologize the images of our culture and seek after the better way. Amen.